All right, welcome back to another edition of uh, Mormon Expression. Uh, I'm your host, John Larson, and we're here in the fabulous studio 110A in um, Salt Lake City on a Tuesday night. If you're ever in Salt Lake, you can uh, drop by. As a matter of fact, we had some folks come from uh, New Mexico. We went out to we went out to dinner. So let, hit me up, and if I'm not uh, busy, I would be happy to. Was it worth it? Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> Um, welcome, guys. Thanks for coming. Uh, it's better than the Temple Square tour, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, we have another fabulous panel. Um, joining us again is Flip. Flip, welcome back. Hi. Uh, Flip's becoming one of our, our, our regulars, and he's got some stuff he's cooking up for us that I'm looking forward to. So uh, we'll keep our eye on that, Flip. Thanks. And, of course, um, the intrepid Thane. Thane, um, Thane is the... Um, Proprietor of the New Order Mormon website. That is correct. Um, you're keeping all the. Uh, how would you characterize your minions? Uh, lukewarm. <laughs> <laughs> Neither hot nor cold. There is no faith test here at um, Mormon Expression. And um, joining us, uh, this is your first time. Well, Jeff, I, no, I think we had you. We've, you've been on before. Uh, just audio. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jeff Ricks, who, of course, is the founder and visionary behind Post-Mormon, um, that organization, which has been around for a, for a long time. Good friend of mine. I've, I've known Jeff for a lot of years, and you came down from Logan to, to join us tonight. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so did you two fight in the board wars? In the board wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Jeff, actually, uh, we just had our board of directors meeting. Of course, as you know, if you listen, um, uh, Mormon Expression is owned by Whitefields, the nonprofit that we have who um, owns this building and all that stuff. Um, Jeff, uh, my, my, my good friend Christian Anderson, who was a founding um, director of, uh, of uh, Whitefields and helped guide us through a lot of stuff, um, is stepping down. Um, he's going to an advisory role, and um, his seat on the board of directors, our corporate governing board, um, was taken up graciously by Jeff. And we really look forward to your influence and your, your help in moving us forward. Well, I'm excited to be a part of it. I, I'm really looking forward to this coming year. Uh, it, we have some fun stuff we're, we're cooking up. At least I think it's fun. All right. Um, well, let's jump in um, with the... Um, the, the news, first of all, the very local news, um, Lindsay reminded me to let you all know that our mixed faith marriage um, workshop will be starting in about two weeks or about a week from when you hear this recording. Um, this, uh, it will be um, $40 per session for six sessions. And um, we, we went out, we did some work, and we have two therapists. We have an ex-Mormon therapist, um, Jenny. She does our women's group. She's, she's wonderful. She's a, she's a great therapist. And we went out and found another therapist who is actually a believing Mormon. And, um, and he's graciously um, consented to join us. And the idea behind this session is that a, a couple where one has left any faith, it doesn't have to be Mormonism, and one retains, um, these two uh, therapists are going to help um, sort of set the, the possibility of working through that. As we all know, Mormonism really takes root in one's marriage and, um, and defines a lot of the roles and the, the, the um, issues that come up in a marriage and, and how they're navigated. And when one person leaves a faith, it can be a huge strain on a marriage. So this session is aimed at people who are both believers in the faith and, um, and non-believers to help them find the tools they need to navigate their marriage. 
Um, so we're really excited about that. Uh, these sessions, um, once the one session's done, when we have enough people, we'll start another. So even if you can't um, join up in our um, starting session here, I think there's a couple more seats left. There will be sessions after that. So contact Lindsay, Lindsay at whitefieldseducational.org. And uh, this or any of our other sessions, we have our Mormon identity, one about um, leaving, leaving faith, and we have our, our women's group, which are both really great sessions. Um, okay, that's my plug. In the news, it's a slow news week in Mormonism, but there's really actually what could be, indeed, the biggest story in all of Mormonism. If, if, if you're to believe Facebook feeds, <laughs> it could be the news of the dispensation, not only the dispensation, of the entire 6,000-year history <laughs> of the earth. That is a somewhat rare um, astronomical phenomena took place last night, Tuesday night, and will take place again tonight. Um, and um, it'll happen again in a few years and a few years after that. But, but, but we'll put that aside for a second. Um, the blood moon um, occurred, which is an eclipse uh, an eclipse of the moon, and when it occurs, because the shadow of the earth completely covers the, 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 the moon in a particular way with the light, it, it, the moon turns red. I didn't stay up. I'm, I, 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 did anybody stay up to see it? Anybody, anybody I did. Here see it? I saw it. Oh, okay. Well, good. <laughs> we had one a couple of years ago, but the, the full redness happened about like 6 a.m. or something, so it was already pretty light out. It was during the summer, and so it wasn't good. Last night, it was a real show. You know what I love about this sign? And we'll, uh, we'll talk about it in a second. Is Not only does it signify that Jesus is coming back, but it signifies that Jesus loves America because this eclipse happened in America. Not everywhere in the world gets to see this. So not only is Jesus signaling that he's coming back to Israel, he's not bothering with the Israelis to, to tell them that. He's going he's gonna to let the people in Missouri know that. It happened in America on tax day. Yes, I, I'm, sure it's a, I'm sure it's a sign. Uh, the next thing is the BLM is going to get one of our cattle off of the BLM land. <laughs> All right, so Joel 2.31, the sun shall turn to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And, of course, Acts 2.20, the sun shall turn to darkness and the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord. So... Obviously, from that. So the sun turning to darkness was today, or is that tomorrow? It was last I'm night, confused. and it's happening again. Oh, oh. The, oh, the sun turning to darkness. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's metaphoric. That, that oh, part so of, it's yeah. half metaphoric. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get all your literalist bullshit here. This, we're talking about signs of. Uh, Doesn't the sun turn to darkness every evening? So here, here's that's it, true. About seven thirty. Here's the thing that I, I want to challenge um, religious folks to. I will buy into any of your signs. I'll sign up. If you stop talking about the goddamn thing, if it doesn't happen, you either get a, you get one card. You get to play this card once. And if it doesn't happen, you have to say, our bad, we're going to scratch that out of our Bible. I'm, you looking, at you, and- <laughs> I'm looking at you, Millerites. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, that, that, well, let, let's, let's be clear. Religions, including Mormonism, sometimes get very specific. And when they do, well, those ones get edited out of the books. The, 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 the prophecies that last are ones that don't have any real meaning except in afterthought, right? And of course, scholars will tell you now that most of the things that the scriptures get right are written 
are, happened after in, in, the, in the Bible and that sort of thing. So when you read the New Testament, they'll tell you the New Testament was written after the destruction of Israel. And you notice how accurate the Book of Mormon is up until about 1800? It's, it's amazingly precise. Um, you know, it tells you people's names and stuff. Then after that, it gets kind of foggy. Um, <laughs> One of my all-time favorite bits of unintentional Christian radio irony was uh, one of the shows I like to listen to, uh, is Viewpoint with Chuck Chris Meyer, and uh, he's constantly going on about the things in Israel and the end times and prophecy being unfolded before us, and I was listening one night, and he was going on like he does every week about, you know, and just look at what's going on in Israel, truly, these are the end times, and ladies and gentlemen, we're celebrating 18 years on the radio this week. <laughs> I just start. I had to pull over, and it was just too astounding. I I used to work. I was a nine one one dispatcher years and years and years ago, and I used to work the night shift. And I would listen to um, Coast to Coast with uh, Art Bell, Art Art Bell, George Nori, Art Bell, the original. And he was broadcasting from a bunker out in Dreamland, right? Uh, well, no, this no, it's not a joke. I'm not. <laughs> he really did broadcast from a bunker out in Dreamland, and um, he. I loved that show. And because they would have UFOs and then Bigfoot specialists, and it was just it was just every weird conspiracy theory night after night. Open Line Friday was the best. Oh, thing. Open Line Friday was wonderful. But what what I because I don't share that kind of like belief, that strong conviction about pretty much anything. That I I like listening to the 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 show because you'd hear these people who really really believed this stuff so strongly. And I just admire that tenacity and that spunk because it's it was it's such ridiculousness. But and 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 the great thing is, if, if you listen to that show for a while, you'll know why you can never get into a fact war with anybody on something because they, they can pull out these weird, obscure things, and then you end up chasing them down, and then they can move it another way. And it, this is one of the reasons you can't take believers and give them facts or truth or whatever um, because because it's that's not the way that's not the way their minds work all right well excellent that's the news sorry i think everybody the conference the 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 women protesting everybody just took a week off all right um so tonight um the church is oftentimes criticized for being a corporation like you'll see a lot of critics of the church who toss this around as this as if this is prima facie evidence that the church is false, right? And I think I actually this was one of my top ten things that I disagree with Mormons about. Now I, I do have to defend myself. Lindsay renamed that top ten things ex Mormons do that suck. That wasn't my title. I said <laughs> things that I disagree with. Um, but I, I mentioned the fact that um, that the church gets criticized quite a bit for not following Protestant theology. And, I, and I, I still stand by that's not a fair criticism in my mind. Because the theology of the church from the beginning has always been about kingdom building. And there's never been a separation for the church saying we shouldn't own corporations or profit-making entities. From the very beginning, um, Joseph Smith and crew were speculators, um, land speculators and all sorts of things. Um, and... I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to criticize Mormon theology on, on that front by saying it's inconsistent. Now, you can criticize it by saying that's not a good theology, but you can't suggest that Mormons aren't Christians because they don't do that because Mormons don't have to be Christians. Mormons are only Mormons. 
right? Am I talking myself in circles? Then you're, seems, you're... seems convoluted to me. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right, though. It's it's uh, historically consistent. You know, at least back to. 1835 or 36 when when the speculation was happening in Kirtland so I, the, so it's my, been happening a long time my, I guess my point is you can't criticize the church <laughs> as being hypocritical for running corporate or profit arms of it's, the, it's the not a new thing you could you could ostensibly look at the New Testament and say oh, all right well this isn't consistent but the New Testament's not consistent on this point and um, you know I, I think you should First, talk to the Mother Catholic Church before you start going after the Mormons. Maybe not hypocritical, but I think disingenuous. I mean, like, in, on the top ten things that Mormons do you disagree with thing, you know, I, I kind of push back on you. Is that it's not, that my problem isn't that they're a corporation. I think the issue that ex-Mormons have with it is that they don't present themselves like that to the members. To the members, this is... God's church on earth. Right. And, you know, they don't say, like, this is God's church on earth, and God has instituted a corporation, and you can go look at our legal filings and all that stuff. You know, it's just there's nothing wrong with them being a corporation, per se. It's just that Mormons don't belong to a corporation. They belong to the church of Jesus Christ on earth, restored. That's a fair point. I think, too, that um, they, um, they, in a lot of their corporations, they've strayed far from any kind of you know, building the kingdom goal. Uh, and I think they should be careful about what they have in their portfolio if, for no other reason than, you know, bad PR. Like when they were somewhere on their portfolio was R.J. Reynolds at one time, I think. I'm not sure if that's rumor or not. Well, I, I had a, a good friend of mine whose mother worked for the church, and all she did all day long is sell stock. Um, I mean, just sell, 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 sell. They get so much donated that. So I don't know if they're carrying it. <laughs> That'd be a good question. But I mean, I'm sure they get it donated to them all the time, and then they just liquidate it, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think the, the the point is good. Saying okay, well, let's look and see consistent with the church with what the church says about itself, and look at their portfolio, and not just things that they hold, but things they actively push. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay, so um, the, the topic of tonight is heart sell, which is something the church actually sells. Um, and by the church, I mean Bonneville International. So let's, let's review the corporate structure a little bit of the church. The church is, is like a lot of big companies, holding companies within holding companies within holding companies. And because of the U.S. tax code, the way it's written, it gives religions wide berth. Now, the church has for-profit institutions, and it, like... Um, Bonneville International is a for-profit. Um, Beneficial Life is for-profit. And they file their taxes just like everybody else. So the, the church has a lot of this stuff that it does, but it's not tax-free. One of the problems is because of the, um, the blanket that's thrown around religions, we can't really see how a lot of the things up front work. So for a normal corporation that is, say, a public company where they publicly sell stock... For example, in the United States, they have to report the income of the top five officers. So if you go onto Google Finance and pick any public company, you'll be able to see whatever it makes. Now, private companies don't have to do that. So let's be clear that the Bonneville International is a private company. It pays taxes, but it doesn't have the same um, reporting techniques that others do. Now, what, what a, lot of would, a lot of us would like to see is that charities and nonprofits are held to the same um, openness that... Um, the, the same openness that um, 
the corporations, the, the public corporations are, are for. And somebody might say, okay, Mr. Larson, we haven't seen any of your, your, for, your quarterly statements. And um, that's, uh, we're trying to get one out. That's simply because they take time and effort to do. And when you have a company that um, you know, makes less than $10,000 a year or whatever it was we were making, it's really hard to, to, to get that done. But that, that, that's one of the reasons these, these things are, have exemptions because churches mostly don't have tons of money. They don't have tons of assets. So, so they're, they're not doing the kinds of things that the Mormon church is doing. But the Mormon church is doing them, and we will take a look at them. Now you know a lot of a lot of churches they voluntarily report you know have their books open apparently they don't have to but they do it anyway because I suppose it's good PR right 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 um, th- there are compelling reasons to not um, and let's be clear most nonprofits do not um, give you the ins and outs of every, everything that's going on um, you know the, if you look at all the non- like hospitals around you are these nonprofits. Um, so, so I, I don't, I don't really want to hold. The reason I bring this up, I don't really want to hold the church to a special standard that the others aren't. I personally think when they hit those sort of thresholds, they should be re- reporting their, their their things publicly. But so, the, so the church has uh, its church wing, right? This there's there's three elements I, I mentioned before. There's there's the culture. There's the I'm a Mormon, and 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 that's the part that nobody controls, even the church. And every once in a while, you see the church try to control these things. Think about like missionary farewell luncheons. You know, this is where the church has tried to tell people not to do it, but people just ignore that because that's 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 legitimately part of the culture, and the church doesn't even control that, right? Then there's the religion, which is you know controlled by the seminaries and by the theologians and the the twelve and those people, and then there's the corporation. And um, I've been, in my history, most critical of the corporation. And I, and I, I say you kind of have to separate them a little bit because they function in, in, different, in different planes. Um, and I don't think they should get special deference. You'll see the church play this shell game sometimes where people will criticize some corporate action of the church. There was a, something that happened down in um, Utah County this last year. I think it was a year or two years ago. They were bullying. Um, they were trying to get property. And they were trying to do things like get it condemned or go to people and get there. They were doing all kinds of like really high pressure techniques. And there wasn't a real good theological purpose for obtaining that land. But when people balked at the church, you know, they, oh, you're persecuting us. We're the, the persecuted majority that controls the legislature. Wah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that, that, that's where I, I think they deserve some healthy criticism, as any company does on, on, on that front. So. So you have a long history of the church um, running itself as a corporation and then running itself as a church. Okay, so, so HeartCell is one of their corporate entities, and we'll, we'll talk more about it in a second. So let's go back and say, wh- where did this even begin? And at the very beginning, back in New York in 1830, 1831, after the church, after the church was formally organized... Joseph Smith um, and the small group of members, 20 or 30 or 40, started proselyting from the beginning. And they would go out two by two, as is talked about in the New Testament, um, and they would go door to door to door to door. And the message they delivered at the time was, you've got to get the hell out of here because the whole world's about to burn down. And when, when they told people to go to Missouri and to go to Kirtland, it wasn't because that's where the saints are gathering like they will talk about today, it was because the world is about to be destroyed. Um, and so that proselyting message was very intense from, from the get-go, very intrusive. And the, one of the things I miss that's really fascinating to read in early Mormon history is these guys would come into town, come swing into town with swagger, 
and they would challenge, they would find the local preacher, you know, and this is the frontier. So this is, you know, this is all like, uh, no, not what you would have in mind. You know, these were frontier folks and they would challenge him to a showdown, right? At the, at the church and they'd oftentimes get one. And there wasn't TV or anything, right? So everybody in town would come to watch the, the Methodist preacher and the Mormons have a, have a showdown and, and right there in the building. And they would talk for hours. I mean, eight, ten hours just going at it and, and fighting it out. And so it was, it was very in your face. And partly because there wasn't any other form of entertainment, right? What, what else did you do? You might have four books and you read them all. Yeah. Um, this is why people then knew the Bible really well. That might be the only book they had. And, you know, it got dark at 5 o'clock. And the field, you know, you, you can only chop wood so long. So uh, what, what else would you do? Have kids. <laughs> they did have a lot of kids for some reason, yeah. Um, so, so, so proselyting started really strongly in, in, the, in the 19th century. And it just, it just kept on. That, that when they would regroup, they would oftentimes... Um, Start pushing those things again, and we see like in Nauvoo before Joseph Smith died um, in 1844. You know, we all know from seminary that the twelve were not in town because they they all got premonitions that they needed to return. Right? That that's the story from seminary. Um, well, what were they were they doing? Well, they, they were actually out campaigning for Joseph Smith at the time. So so there was this long history of going out in other people's faces. And challenging them front up and saying, you are wrong. Um, I, I just noticed um, a relative was posting something on Facebook about um, a missionary. And they were like, yeehaw, out converting Mexico. And that word convert is, is so funny because in the Mormon paradigm, it's so innocuous. But if you were to say that, you, you dirty, filthy ex-Mormons, to your Mormon relatives that you converted somebody... Steam would start pushing out of their ears. Um, that that it's 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 something that's so strange that that it's such an aggressive thing to do. If you think about it, to you you can't attack our beliefs that way. Right. The way that we attack the beliefs of those poor Mexicans. Because because a mission, although we framed it very positively, we spun it very positively in our culture, is a very culturally aggressive thing to do. Right. Did you I, say imperialist? Is that what you said? Imperialist, yes. <laughs> that, you, that's too much for you? I, I, no, that's what I heard. It's, I, it's cultural imperialism, pure and simple, because not only do we demand that they switch faith, we demand they, they abandon their culture. And they, they, yeah. they, they um, come to church on Sundays, wear a white shirt and a red tie. and, and Dress and act in a very, a very ostensibly American way that sticks them out as, a, as an, as an Amerophile. And um, it's it can be it can be dangerous. Uh, who who was the I, I I wish I could remember in 1993, professor at BYU, an anthropologist. Um, there were bombings of the churches down in Chile and, and Brazil at the time, and he said, "Well, that's because they're they're very American. You're building American buildings. You're 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 putting a big target. You're painting a big flag there." And he got right. removed from, from BYU for saying that. That if um, that if you stopped looking like Americans, maybe you wouldn't be a target of terrorism um, on that front. Okay, so if we look at American history, um, what we see is in the, in the cities, and this came from, this came from Europe, really, um, people were crammed together in cities, and there weren't necessarily like shops like we have now, and a lot of things were actually peddled door to door. 
Um, so there would be a knife sharper, sharpener who would push their little cart down the street, and they would call out that they were selling kni- or sharpening knives, and you'd bring your butcher knife down, and they would sharpen it up. So there's a long history of, of reaching out to people directly in terms of sales that goes deep into our cultural roots. Um, and so post-war, you really see the rise of suburbanism at this point. People start moving out. You know, before that we had the city centers and we had the rural farms, but now we get the suburbs. And this model of doors-to-door sales really starts taking off in America um, post-war. And, and it's, it's strangely culturally acceptable. Um, it's something that is done a lot. You have your Cutco knife salesman, and you have your Hoover vacuum salespeople. Fuller brush. Fuller brush people. And this is, this is this thing you see from like Death of a Salesman, from the play. Like it, was a, it was a cultural phenomenon because uh, and it reflected the way Americans were themselves diversifying across, across the country. And it was acceptable for religions to do it. Um, and and I, I, the point I was making before is it grew out of that coming directly, bringing religion directly to you. Because as, as, we, as we moved out of the frontier and outstripped the churches, churches used to be something that were in city center. And people would come into the church just like they'd come into the cultural center. Um, but as the frontier moved out beyond the churches, church was something people started doing more organically. And it's not just Mormons who sort of build their own community churches. Community churches among the Baptists and among the Pentecostals and all sorts of different flavors of evangelicals are really common. One thing that Mormons do that other people don't do is they build their they actually build their churches in the suburbs. So this this element of bringing religion to you really took off. If you go to most cities in the United States, small cities, you'll still find all the churches in the city center. And it's, it's really rare to go way out into the suburbs and find a church pump, sitting right down there in just a bunch of houses. That's almost always a Mormon church when you see that happen. Um, so Mormons, Mormons I, I've said before that the post-war was really the golden era of Mormonism because um, that's when we started dressing the way we dress. Why did we dress that way? Because everybody dressed that way. And um, if you read the old missionary manuals up until even the 70s, they would instruct missionaries to dress like businessmen. And um, they would instruct missionaries to not stick out. Now, which is it? <laughs> I've used the example before, but it's a perfect example. It's, it's the, the, the missionary white shirt and tie is just like the nun's whipple. Right? When nuns started wearing, when the nunneries were begun, that's what everybody wore. Everybody wore a whipple. Whipple is that face thing that women wear that cover their entire neck, and, and then they oftentimes have sort of this hoodie sort of thing, think the flying nun. Yeah. And if you go look at medieval paintings, you'll notice that all the women are wearing them, right? Um, and so when nuns started wearing whipples, it wasn't anything that was strange. They were dressing like everybody else. Um, and, and, but then conservative religious movements tend not to change, right? They tend to stay consistent. So now you have, it used to be like eight years ago, you could say the only people who wore white shirts were bankers and Mormons, and now the bankers have quit wearing them. <laughs> so it'll be, I'm not, it, it won't be very long before Mr. Mac is the only place you'll be able to find a short sleeve white shirt <laughs> because everybody else will have abandoned them except maybe in an ironic fashion. And you know what, what's funny is I, I found if you watch media, they now use white shirt and tie to represent any religious 
um, moron or um, like, like it doesn't necessarily mean Mormonism. Have you noticed that? Like if you're going to represent somebody as being a, um, a, a, a naive religious person, they put them in a white shirt and tie. The, the PR department of the church should catch on to this and, and fix that. Yeah. And I think the, the Book of Mormon musical has helped to, to, to you know, give people the image that anybody who dresses like that is one of those Mormons that you can laugh about in the, in the show. Because it is comical, you, yeah, yeah. Especially when 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 you got the backpacks and the bike helmets and the the the, the right pant leg stuffed into the sock. <laughs> it, no, you're right. Uh, the the key here, I think, is that they haven't changed since 1952. Right. right? They they uh, they defined the uniform in 1950, whatever, and it hasn't changed. So. You know, uh, uh, waiting for the revelation. (laughs) I'm not sure that's required. So, you know, the the same uniform that my father wore, uh, my brother wore. I didn't go on a mission. I I did something else. But, um, you know, my brother wore both of my brothers wore and, you know, my nephews wear and, you know, we're, we're three generations into this exact same thing. And and what's poignant to me about this is I remember when my older brother was preparing for his mission, this would have been like 1970 something, 76 ish. And he's got this list of things that he's got to buy to go on his mission. And, and coincidentally, every single one of those things is sold at Mr. Mac. Just, <laughs> I'm sure that's a coincidence, but uh, one of the, one of the things that are on his list is, is things like hats Right, like uh, you know, the old fedora. They want him to wear a hat. He's never worn a hat in his life. It's 1976, for Christ's sake. But they want him to wear a hat, and they want him to wear, you know, uh, the the rubbers on on his shoes because you know you don't want to get your shoes wet. And there was a whole a whole um, list of things that just nobody wore anymore. But it, it was left over from when they wore them, right? right? Because they haven't changed this this dress this uh, dress list. In at at that point in time, twenty years. Now it's been forty years, and, and it, it locked in in the sixties. And I blame Ernie Wilkinson. But my father served his mission in Germany from nineteen sixty to nineteen sixty two. I've seen his pictures, and he's wearing a beret, <laughs> um, which wasn't that uncommon in nineteen sixty two, right? That wasn't you know. Think about Jean Paul Sartre's whatever. I, I don't know. They, they, people were wearing berets at the time, but 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 he wasn't trying to be. You know, my father, a very conservative man, he wasn't trying to be. Outlandish. He was. He was. He was dressing as people dressed, and then then it calcified. Ernie Wilkinson, of course, was the president of BYU, who was the counter counterculture guy, and sort of solidified that anything that even smelled like a hippie um, was not going to be allowed, and that that all got classified into the to the um, the church's code. Charles. So I um, actually just saw earlier today that there has been a change. God doesn't like backpacks anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Backpacks are out. Messenger bags. bags are, yes. The messenger bags are in, which is awesome for the sisters. Think <laughs> wait, 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 wait. BYU bans them. The, you can't wear a side bag if, you're a, if you have boobs and you're at BYU, right? I, no, this is real. This is a real thing. You can't because it lifts and separates, and you can't, you can't wear that at BYU. You got listen. Just, you guys look this stuff up. Heaven yeah. forbid we acknowledge that women have boobs. We can't. We can't ever acknowledge that. I so. don't know that this backpack business is necessarily news because I 
I left in 99, and the mission paperwork expressly said no backpacks. And they even made a point, because like, I think I showed up at the MTC, and a bunch of people showed up with backpacks, and they said, nope. And they said, you can buy this church-approved messenger bag at the bookstore there, which I dutifully did. And like all the rest of the missionaries, we got out there, and they were crap. They flopped around while you're on your bike, and they were just a gigantic, uncomfortable nuisance. And you went and back to the backpack. Everybody ended up just wearing backpacks. And I never, because I heard a bunch of weird rumors as to what the backpack rule was about, but none of them, I mean, none of them made sense, which is as good a reason as anything for the church to make a rule. But... Uh, as far as I know, that's always been the thing, that backpacks aren't allowed and all the missionaries wear them. I think it must be a mission-by-mission mission thing because all the missionaries in, in my ward in Sandy always wore the yeah. – I'm my, pretty sure my white handbook said no backpacks. In my mission, they were, they were not allowed. We weren't allowed to have backpacks, and that was 92 to 94 in California. Um, so uh, this, this really happened to me. I'm not making this up. Since I say that a lot, you, you probably get suspicious <laughs> that I was in a city a few months ago. And maybe this shows that I've been out of church for a while. I, across the street, I saw two guys in gray suits riding bikes. I, could, it, like, it, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then they turned towards me. I saw the name tag. I'm like, oh, yeah. You don't ride a bike in a suit. <laughs> no, nobody does that. Or, right. a, or a dress, for crying out loud. Or a dress. Well, now, isn't, the, isn't their uniform evolving some? It's kind of loosening up a little bit? I think, it's I think it has a little bit because uh, they changed it two or three years ago so that you don't have to wear the jacket in the summer. Thank goodness. because That, that was – in my mission, there was a temperature. And this, this is mindset of Mormons. Probably about 10% of the missionaries carry around thermometers. <laughs> they wouldn't. I mean, if it, so, the, whatever the temperature so was, it was, like it was ninety-two degrees. degrees yeah, they wanted to be completely obedient to God's words, and if it was seventy-seven <laughs> degrees, they're going to wear that jacket. We um, had uh, in the summer, we didn't have to wear a suit coat for ordinary proselyting duties. Although at one hundred and fifteen degrees, it's bad enough with the necktie. Yeah. But we had to wear the suit coat to church, and I mean that we just would show up soaking in sweat because we couldn't wad up our suit coat and smash it into our bags and you know i mean northern california 120 was not impossible well out there the entrenchability of this is shown i just read an article i can't remember if it was in salon or huffington post or one of those liberal rags (laughs) yeah um that that was a story about the missionaries now who are proselyting via social media and they went to the place and took a picture of these guys. And they're, they're all walk, locked in some warehouse somewhere. And there they all were in their white shirts and ties with their tags on. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's stuck there. I think, though, the, the, the part of the reason, because we ask, like, why do they do this when it looks so stupid? It's because it's a, it's a uniform. And, that's a, and I remember being a missionary that, you know, when, when I was out with my tag and I looked like a missionary and doing the missionary thing, I felt like a missionary. And, you know, and when we broke the rules and went out on a P-Day shopping in our, you know, street clothes, it felt different. Right, right. Um, and I think that we could go on and on about the meaning of the, of, the, of the clothing, but I think the point that we're trying to make is you get these, these things that are cultural at the time. The, the suit, the, the, the dress of the missionary was a product of the 1950s, of the, of the 1960s, and it just got kind of stuck. Um, and and we were unable to move beyond it for various reasons. And what else is stuck in the '60s, John? <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> um, so so we talk about the cells movement. So what what happened if you if you read the um, 
the evolution of missionary manuals, they, they go way back to the 30s, I think is the oldest one I have. They are, ve- they are unabashedly, they talk about sales techniques. And, and like I was mentioning before, there was a time in American culture where being a great salesman and being a high-pressure salesman was not looked down upon the way it is now. Not that it's fully looked down upon. There's still people who do it. But it was more of an honorable trade. If you see somebody with a fuller brush kit set or Cutco knives, you're kind of like, ooh. And then you go and, and, and then, like, um, what is it, Amway? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's okay, but it's a little socially awkward and weird. And, and um, wasn't it uh, was Carnegie? I forget the first name. Was it How to Andrew? Win Friends and not oh, not, Dale, the, Dale. not the industrialist, Dale, but the guy with Dale, the, how to, Dale Carnegie? How yeah. to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh-huh. It being a salesman almost became faddish. Like he wrote that as a self help book for anybody, and that's right. what that book is: is a sales manual how to how to sell yourself or whatever it is you're talking about. And he made it popular. Everybody wanted to be like a sale, you know, like him. Yeah, yeah, and and so so these books would talk about high-pressure sales techniques. And they would oftentimes go through role-playing where they would um, rehearse so that if you had certain answers, you knew exactly what your canned answer was. So that you, and they were all about walking somebody down the primrose path. They are all about getting them to this point of the, of the high-pressure sale. And, and there's books. Um, Lindsay brought me one tonight. I, I have several copies that talk about being a good salesman or using sales techniques in, in the mission field. And some of them were printed privately, and then the church started printing them. There's a whole Mr. Brown series. Um, this is way before most of you guys at the time. Um, but this was a long-running um, technique that they, would, they were always teaching Mr. Brown. I remember that. Yeah. Um, and so there's all these books and pamphlets and manuals that are written on how to convert Mr. Brown to the gospel. And Mr. Brown always gives these like softball, really, tell me more about that. You know? <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, um, so the church moves up at these high-pressure sales techniques that I think we're all familiar with. We're going to talk about more in a minute. So we've talked about this rise of this culture, this sales culture. Let's go back in time again to, to talk about a parallel rise among the church. We, we opened the podcast talking about the church's business arm. Very early in the church, and I think a lot of it had to do with um, conference, really, and, and control of, of um, the message. Because Brigham Young spread the saints out really far. The empire was very ambitious, all the way from San Bernardino, all the way up into Canada, down into Mexico, Juarez. Um, and, and early on, for the example, the church invested in um, telegraph lines and looked for railroad spurs and ways to communicate and keep central control. Because Brigham Young, more so than Joseph Smith, was about the central planned um, economy and keeping the um, central leadership control. So the, the early members, the 12, it was a miserable job. They were on the road constantly, you know, traveling to Malad, Idaho, and then out to, you know, BFE, uh, Nevada, or wherever they, wherever they were. And so the church was very interested in controlling um, media outreach to be able to reach its, its, its members. And we have a very early recording of conference. I can't remember if it's Heber Grant when he was, when he was young, like in 19... 19- 10 or 1915 um, and the church early on I think by the 20s started broadcasting conference and um, they just set up their own radio station basically to do it um, the radio station eventually became KSL 
Um, and they early on adopted media. It was in the 70s when they were putting up satellite dishes, where I think most yeah. of us, the first time we ever even saw a satellite dish was at a steak center. This is way before anything like that that was around. So, so the church really had this strong interest in, in media. Um, and, and, and the church has been obsessed with its, its image. So early on, I think we, we discussed that the music in the spoken word, which is broadcast from Salt Lake's men, broadcast from the 20s. I think it's the longest running radio show, radio show ever. It's yeah, the longest possibly. running broadcast program in history. Right, yeah. And it sure is long. If you try to <laughs> it is long. Um, and, um, and so the, the church set up this, this media empire. Um, of course, they had to have a newspaper to combat the Gentile press. And so the Deseret News was, was um, started very early on. Um, KSL. And, of course, they had lots of publishing companies to publish the, um, the books. And this grew into a media empire that we now know as Bonneville International. Bonneville International is actually a lot smaller than it was um, in the mid-'90s. The '90s sort of hit the pinnacle and the church actually started to divert, divest. Um, the, the, the church's model for the general authorities for a long time was the church didn't pay them, but when you became a general authority, you inherited seats on boards of directors and other managing positions in the church's portfolio. It still happens to some extent, not like it did before. So in like 1992, 1987, if you looked at the board of directors, say, Union Pacific Railroad, you would see that there was... There was Packer was was on that, and you know, he had no business whatsoever being on the board of directors of a railroad. Um, but it was a it was an income source for him and a controlling stake in, in the church's interest. Um, so the church built this this rather large empire, and I'm going to go over to the church's site right now and actually tell you um, where they have radio stations still. I don't think they have as many TV stations. Um, is is KSL their only um, TV station? They probably have something in Idaho or Arizona. They so they have they have stuff in California, in um, Portland, I think in Seattle, and in um, in um, um, Arizona and Utah, where they they still control stations. And I think at some point they had upwards of thirty stations. Um, you say what kind of stations? Pop music stations, rock stations, talk radio stations. They still own um, many of the the stations that are like um, FM one hundred that. Um, mm. Plays yeah. the soft hits and Christmas music. <laughs> which one? But there's a classic rock station that's one of their. Uh, they have a classic rock stations. They have. Um, you can usually tell because on Sunday they'll play Sunday music. You're like, what the hell? What's, what's going on with this? Uh, then you, you have a church. You have a church-owned station. Um, so surprisingly enough, with all the Mormons here, they can't. There's not a Mormon station. Like if, if, if you if you if you get within 500 miles of Alabama. <laughs> like half of your radio dial is going to be all this Christian nonsense, and we don't even have one. We don't have like there. One. There was an AM station that was that was very Mormon, and but it wasn't Mormon owned. It was just Mormon themed, and well, I don't think that lasted very long. That was back in the nineties or something. Your typical Christian gets one hour of church a week, whereas we already know Mormons <laughs> get forty eight. When are they going to listen oh, yeah. to Mormon no, radio? That's an excellent point. No more, please. <laughs> Please, God, I can't take any more. And plus, the, when I went to BYU, um, um, when I was getting ready to go on my mission and trying to get myself all religious, there was a radio station I listened to to try to... And you can only listen to the soundtrack of Saturday's Warrior so many times. The, and Lex D'Alvedo, uh, you know, it all starts to sound the same. Okay, so Bonneville International, the church, the church owns. And I don't know who owns Bonneville International. The, the, anyway, it was, it's owned by... 
Is it the presiding bishop or is it the corporation of the what, who, oh, do you know? Bonneville is or, owned by DMC, Deseret Management Corporation. Okay. Which then funnels up, well, DMC is the for-profit branch of the church, so it is not a subsidiary of anything else. Uh, doesn't report up to presiding bishopric or uh, anything else, but so those ones, those ones report in the corporation of the president of the church, as opposed. Uh, it's the other way around. There's, there's two. There's two main corporations at the top. The uh, of the church, the corporation of the presiding bishop who owns like the cattle farms and the land in Florida and that sort of stuff. Right. And the the, the first presidency controls most of the other things, of like the church like, stuff. But DMC is a separate entity from the corporation of the presiding bishop or the corporation of the presi- of the first president. Well, the, but who holds it? They they're not fully independent, are they? Yeah, they are. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, how that happen? Mormon Expression is a listener-funded program. If you like what you hear, please visit us at mormonexpression.com and consider becoming a subscribing member. While you're there, let us know what you think about the show. <laughs> all right. So Bonneville International um, owns all these radio stations, and they also own a lot of advertising. So not only do they sell advertising on their air, they sell advertising. Um, and that's where HeartSell comes in. So HeartSell is a copyrighted sales technique that the church owns and pushes on other people. And on their website, as of today, they claim... Um, um, Huntsman Cancer Institute. Okay, well, he, he has to, right? Boy Scouts of America. Yeah, they're kind of in the church's back pocket, too. They have to. National Hospice Foundation. Did Marriott told them or something? I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Salvation Army. That's the order they put it. Notice how they slip it. They, they don't put it first, and they don't put it last. They kind of say, oh, and, and yeah, the, the, our parent company. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ and the Salvation Army. Salvation Army is interesting because... If you've been, have any of you guys served foreign missions and encountered the Salvation Army? They're nice little bell ringers in the United States, but not so much in other places of the world. They can be kind of aggressive um, in proselyting. Um, so I guess we, uh, we will, will any, any port in a storm. Okay, so Heart Cell is copyrighted. And this is their words, strategic emotional advertising. This is the first sentence. At Bonneville Communications, our ability to touch the hearts and minds of audiences makes us an essential resource for organizations with vital messages. Um, Our unique strength is the ability to touch the hearts and minds of our audiences, working first feeling, then thought, and finally action. We call this uniquely powerful band of creative heart cell strategic emotional advertising that stimulates response. Also, the, the uh, title of that uh, whatever article webpage is Affecting Change by Reaching the Hearts and Minds of Our Audiences. So they're, they're kind of reiterating the hearts and minds motif. Yes, and here's their last sentence. Our people are driven by the belief that advertising can and should be a powerful positive influence on the values and lives of people. First of all, let's start there. What they believe, Bonneville International, Heart Cell, 
is that values are not something that's intrinsic. Values are not something that's part of who you are and defines what you are as a human being. Values are something that can be bought and sold. It's a tool. Values are something that can be influenced. Values are something that can be influenced to sell shit. Everything I read there is some of the most cynical prose I've read ever in my life because what it essentially says is all the stuff that we're doing is for sale, for one thing. And secondly, it can all be manipulated. It can all be created, and we can give it to you. This, uh, this values thing, Bonneville International, they, um, they say that uh, Bonneville, Bonneville International Corporation is a value-driven company composed of value-driven people. And as I read through this thing, they use this values, values over and over again. And it really is meaningless to me, the way they use values. It's just not – it's like saying we're a criteria-driven company – but what is the criteria? What are the values? You know what I mean? That, that's Christian code speak. Yeah, that's, that's really what it is. It is Christian code speak, but I think it's clear that they don't have values outlined here because what they're telling you is what we can do is we can construct those. We can create a framework that will shape your message into quote-unquote values. What they're saying is come to us with which whatever fucking bullshit you want to sell to people. Not only do we have the outlets for it, not only can we con- record it for you, but we can make it so that they will first feel, then think, then, then think, think, and then, then act. act. Yeah. They actually put that in there. Like, like that, that sounds like something that, that, that somebody would be criticizing them. This article sounds like it was written by a critic, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so... When, Oh, was that me? I, no, 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 I just, I, 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 I felt like it was I, coming. I keep it 20, uh, loaded up. So, um, uh, the swear jar. Everybody listening out there can't see we're talking about swear I, jar. I heard a rant coming and I got my singles ready. Um, um, so, when I was a missionary, we called this the commitment pattern. Um, and then they stopped calling it the commitment pattern um, when they had um, teach my word or whatever the hell that was with Jesus walking on water, preach my gospel. Um, but then when I read through it, I'm like, oh, interesting, no more commitment pattern. It was still there. They just didn't call it a commitment pattern, much like Relief Society homemaking. Yeah, they just don't call it homemaking. I don't know what they're telling them now. You can see their technique if you want to. It's, it's freely available, and apparently it's becoming an Internet meme of spoofing um, missionaries. Um, so you can go on, log on to LDS.org and chat with a missionary and watch what they do to you. Immediately try to move you down these sort of things. They'll try to get you into this emotional em- emotional front landing pad. Then they'll try to implant thoughts in you, then get you to do action. This was one of the things that was one of the major faith eroding things for me was arriving at the MTC. And I remember my very first morning, that study period, waiting for the teacher to come in. And so I opened up the Purple Dragon, or whatever we called it back then, and started reading. Wait, uh, wait, what? The, my missionary <laughs> handbook, the sales book, was purple, and we called it the Purple Dragon. Oh, I thought you were talking about something else. <laughs> go, 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 go. <laughs> You're thinking of the Green guys, Dragon? It was called the Purple Dragon. And like whatever you call dragon. it is fine with me. I just, <laughs> keep it. But I, I remember just going you know, what, two or three pages into it and having this faith-shaking crisis as I'm reading this, and I, I recognize this is a sales manual. 
This is exactly how you sell a vacuum door to door. What they taught me when I was in the MTC is this is the pattern of the gospel. That this technique that we're learning is how... So, so, so there was, it was so blatant. The, 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 if you find those missionary manuals from the late 80s, 90s, they are just over the top um, in this high-pressure cells. Because what, what the commitment pattern was, first of all, is, is it's a foot-in-the-door technique where you're, you're playing off of people's kindness to very early box them in. And it was very much encouraged and lauded if a, if a missionary invited somebody to be baptized on the first visit. And if you didn't do it by the second discussion, there was something you might have a, get a little bit of a dressing down, right? It was very high pressure, and you'd have them committed into these things where you even told them what it was. Um, and, and before, you know, like tithing was like less than five, right? If you didn't have a baptism commitment by four, that's a lot of money that they're going to be paying that they don't even know about, let alone the stuff in the temple, or masturbation. I don't think that was even in the six. <laughs> Word of wisdom was like lesson eight. Or, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Randy. I, say, I found it uh, really interesting. Thinking back to the time I spent in the MTC, they follow the new trends in door-to-door salesmen. Because when I was in the MTC in 2002, they staffed a call center. You send out those pass-along cards, right? And there's a number. Call and get your free Book of Mormon. And guess where that phone rings? Some Bravo, a bunch of poor missionaries that got going to the MTC because you're going to go get trained to be a missionary. But no, you got to spend 20 hours a week working the phones in the call center because we don't actually want to hire anybody to answer the phones, but we want to further indoctrinate you. And I remember I had such anxiety that like that was nightmarish. I basically had a panic attack walking that because I didn't go on a mission to be a high-pressure salesman. But... That's what they train you to do, and they just break you down piece by piece until you get there. This caused a lot of anxiety for a lot of missionaries, that, that you were taught that you were going to be going and doing um, clerical work, basically, that you were going to be doing some kind of gospel-oriented thing. And it's really highly fantasized, and um, they don't really talk about what you really do all day long as a missionary. And you get out there, and then the people who are, be, are being successful are people who have a natural gift for sales, high-pressure sales techniques. And I remember a lot of things we were taught, like like these strange door approaches. You know, you don't tell them you're a Mormon missionary who wants to convert them. You'd say, can I talk to you about my friend Jesus Christ? Or can I... Um, 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 or, or I remember we were told... Um, say can i come in like because a lot of people that was that was the the du jour technique for a while my mission because people be like oh uh, you sure um it's really hot out here you can i trouble you for a glass of water right right i've used that yeah i remember that yeah. <laughs> see it works man oh yeah. the best one which uh, ironically enough was taught to me by our buddy rich who was on last week's show for those of you who listened was we had i believe it was gene r cook come out and our door approach was Literally, knock on the door, they open up, put your hand out to your handshake and say, hi, we're the missionaries, and start walking in the door. <laughs> that's what they wanted us to do. I think that's what broke me. <laughs> so once you got in with, with the commitment pattern, you would aggressively ask them questions that were of a very personal nature that they would be uncomfortable um, answering. And you would also um, 
talk about things that would evoke an emotional response, then you immediately jump on and say, that's the spirit. You're, what you're feeling is the spirit. And whenever, when you get positive response, you'd immediately turn around into a commitment, which is a direct question, which is if you've ever been to one of those things where like, um, like a vacation home sales, you know, where you get a free vacation if you go and listen to this pitch, or you've been to an MLM um, pitch, they do these exact same things. Very high pressure that everybody around you seems to be getting it. Everybody around you is, is having this, this, this experience that, that you feel pressure to. You feel pressure to immediately make decisions. Decide now, now, now. There's, you, you have to decide now. You have to get baptized now. If you don't act on the spirit now, you're going to scare the spirit away. It has to happen immediately. You, there's, 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 there's no thinking about this. And, and those techniques were drummed into all of us. Is there anybody here who served a mission who disagrees with me on this point? Of course, I'm talking to the home team. It's not like, hey. <laughs> First time he served a mission. Oh, okay, good. Did, 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 did anything creep you guys out when you were on a mission? I mean, everybody's got, everybody's got something. Um, well, they call that section, I mean, they call the first section of... They call the first section of the commitment pattern Building Relationships of Trust. DRT. But yeah, the title of that right there. The second I heard that, I was like, what the hell? We have to, we have to trick people into trusting us? I mean, yeah. if they don't trust me, what am I going to do? But that's, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, Flip reminded me of, uh, you know, uh, an experience as well that, um, that changed me. It kind of got me going because uh, when I read the, the uh, Purple Dragon, as you put it, we didn't call it that, but um, that, I had a real problem with it. I had a big problem with it, especially my first week of my mission. I just said to my uh, trainer and this uh, zone leader, I remember saying, this is for people who don't have the spirit. It's like they've given, they're like, hey, if you don't have the spirit, you know, use the spirit, use the spirit. That's all you hear in all the talks. And then they give you this manual that has nothing to do with it. And I just chucked it. I, and, but my anxiety and my outlet was um, I rewrote. I wrote an entire you know, program for my mission, and they actually adopted it. And then I did an underground letter you know, exposing all my fears and all my you know, disagreements and stuff. And that's how I um, dealt with it on my mission. But um, I, my whole mission, I had a problem with that. They would just tell me, hey, use the spirit, use the spirit. But... This is what you do when you don't have it. I, and, uh, excellent. And I, I'm sure what most of you are, you, most of you are here are clever enough to realize that there was another layer of sales going on, and it wasn't about who you were talking about. You were the victim of it, right? This whole thing was wrapped around you. And we've talked about before that the church knows efficiency, and it knows that the system it's using is not efficient for getting converts, but it's efficient for locking people into the system. And all this same shit that you were pushing out on these poor people um, down the street, they were using on you, too, this whole time. You were, you were a victim and the perpetrator. Go ahead. You know, my, uh, my grandfather served three missions, and one day, before I went on my mission, he sat me down and he said, I wasn't the missionary that could ever get anybody baptized. I would just, you know, love people, talk to people, but... I had to make this deal with each of my companions that they would be the ones that would put them in the water, but I could get, it, get us in the door. <laughs> I'll get us in the door at every house, but I'm not getting anybody in the water because what they believe is up to them. You know, and, and it was, 
I, I thought it was really big of my grandfather to see through it. <laughs> What's well, I think it's amazing how many missionary how missionaries kind of do a sit down refusal. This is the constant noise you're hearing from the mission presidents. Because I think a lot of people, they're just like uncomfortable with it and they kind of take a step back. But um, I, I, think, I think what the church does in terms of control is it makes you feel, feel broken. The, the, I've said this a million times. The, the, what, the, what religions want you to do is feel broken all the time. You, you need the medicine they're selling. So if, if 75% of the missionaries come back thinking, well, I'm not as spiritual as I thought I was, and I guess I really need this church because I'm a fuck-up, the church won. That's what they want you to think. They want you to go out there and, if, and not say, this is bullshit sales techniques. No, they want you to think it's you. That if you were better, you would have had 20 baptisms. If you were better, that family. And they'll use that stuff on you. This family is going to rot in hell because you didn't do it right. You didn't learn these lessons. You didn't ask them at the right time. You didn't challenge to be baptized. <coughs> when I got home and reported to the stake president, he told me, he said... Um, you need to pray really hard, and, and, and the Lord will let you know if, if your sacrifice was acceptable. <laughs> uh, anyways, but when I first got into the MTC um, a, about a week in, they had, they had this material, training material for us, and, but it wasn't ours. It was from our teacher. And so, but I, I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to need this stuff once I get out into the field. So I took it to the copy shop there in the MTC, and said, I need all these papers copied. And so they started copying a couple of them, but there was two, and I wish I could remember what was on them. It was commitment pattern stuff. I wish I kept it somehow, but she told me, she says, we can't copy this. And I said, why not? And she says, because this is strictly for the MTC. This does not go out. It's, it's not for public consumption. We don't want this getting out. And <laughs> Wow, okay. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of like a red flag in my mind. Yeah, yeah. For a long time, you couldn't even get the missionary material like at the distribution center. They would kept it kind of locked up. Then it became so ubiquitous, they stopped trying. Well, I had a different experience because I signed up as a, well, I was called to serve as a church service missionary, and I worked in the MTC. And my duty was to be a fake investigator. And I don't know if any of you guys experienced that, but we were in the small fake living rooms that had really lots of copies of Reader's Digest, which was always fun to read the jokes while I waited. But each afternoon I was there, they would knock on my door. And um, we were instructed that as an investigator, we did not know anything about the gospel. And all that they required was to ask us to come in. And if, if they asked the question, we would let them in, and then they could go ahead with their discussion. But if they didn't ask, we had to be polite on the doorstep until we shut the door eventually. Um, but what, when you said about people selling it to the missionaries much more than to us, the investigator, they weren't aware whether we were members or not. And they probably presumed we were, but we were quite a... a different looking bunch Exotic. of people if Maybe you like. Maybe had a different accent. Well at the or... time I was fresh out of home and I was not, I was not yet Utah-fied so um, <laughs> they really didn't know quite where I was coming from but uh, there was wait, also wait, wait. <laughs> I just saw her face when she said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't right, go there. Go, go um, but, but, but there were also um, several people that came in with us that were, you know, they looked like they could be ex-bikers, and you just, you just didn't know. 
And uh, the first thing they would say is, oh, you know, so are you going to the Y? And I'd say, uh, no, like, what's that? Well, that's the local university. And I'm, well, what are you doing here? Because they just think they're one of you or you're one of them. And I'd said, well, my husband's been transferred here for a couple of months, so I had to find something to do. Well, they immediately go wide-eyed and think, oh, she's real. She's like a real <laughs> investigator. And they get their head down in their books, and they go ahead and try and convert me. And um, so I'd see about eight, eight couples of missionaries each session. And at least once every couple of weeks, somebody would track me down in the parking lot or the lunchroom, because they realized, even though they hadn't sold it to me, that they were coming back for a second chance, because <laughs> they really believed that they, this was their oh, first so chance to make to the sale. In. You weren't supposed to we, If they sold it to me, I, I oh. bought it. If they didn't, they didn't. And they, I threw them immediately when they gave me the, everybody believes in a supreme being, even though they may call him by something else. You all know that, right? And I said, well, I don't. Well, what do you believe? I don't believe anything. I think the first line is, like them. with most people, we believe in God. Isn't that the first line of the first discussion? I think I nailed it. Oh, I heard it, it a lot of times. I'm, I'm trying to retranslate it out of... Um, I heard it over yeah. and over and Say over. Say it again. We, everyone believes in a supreme being, even though we may call him by different names. Yeah, yeah, that, that was it. And then they'd ask me, and I had no belief, and that threw them through a loop. And, uh, but no, many times I felt bad as I had to inform the missionary that I actually was a full-fledged member of the church and <laughs> not to worry about me going home to my lonely life. So, Now, how did you get that job? I, um, I just was home and said I want to do something and talked to my bishop and he got me a church service calling. I see. So it was a calling. That's, it, it came that's, down, that's code came for down with the paperwork. Yeah. I had 18 months. I had the, you're officially called, had a name badge and everything. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was, I was on the inside <laughs> in plain clothes. So one of the things that keeps coming up is uh, what I was taught, because for many years I was a bill collector, which is a lot like sales, only even harder. But it's the same principle. You're trying to talk somebody into giving you money when they know better than to give you money. And one of the things that I was taught routinely was what's called the assumptive stance, which they don't use the language like that, but you see that throughout the commitment pattern, heart cell, and all that, which is like, for example, in the bill collecting, I never said, when will you make a payment? I'd say, how are you making your payment $50 today? Write out, you know, whatever. Like, I don't, you don't give them the option. And they say the same thing, like, with the mornings, like, will you be baptized today? You know, are you thinking about being baptized? You're like, when, when do you want to be baptized? It's the assumptive thing. You just assume that this is the direction we're going, and it's a natural psychological technique because all kinds of sales, the first thing that you can do to make it easier is to get the person on the back foot. And that's the technique is you just make the assumption, and most people are too polite to say, hey, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> I'm doing something here. Here's a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that, that, that's... High-pressure sales techniques are always around that, always around using people's own insecurity, guilt, shame, um, their um, desire to be socially appropriate, to be part of the in-group, to do all these sort of social things we have. It, it uses all those against you. Like we brought up a little bit before, I mean, two techniques of advertising and sales. The two most important elements are that you create a problem 
and you sell the solution. Right. You know, and for years I serviced contracts for gym memberships, which are hilarious. You know, the three-year contracts, all this stuff. And I could see how many people actually use them. And you saw this all the time where you'd see they went into the gym the day they bought the contract. They went in three days later, the day after that, and then nothing. And that was 99% of contracts. And I kept thinking, how the hell are all these people going in there and signing off you know, 36 months at $38 a month, and they go to the gym four times. And the whole point is that they bought something that they thought they wanted because the salesman convinced them that they wanted that. When in reality, they didn't. They didn't want to go to the gym every day and go through everything that it takes to get the things that the salesman was offering if you just come to this gym. Mormon sales is the exact same thing, is that you, you, first you convince them that you're missing something, and we have the solution, and it's to come here, and you've got, you've got to pay us every month, and you've got to do this thing. And if you do that, you'll have this. And people say, well, of course I want that. Who doesn't want to be happier and better and all that other crap? I signed one of those without being sold. I went to the gym, and I said, I want to sign up. You were and I went four golden. times. But one of the things, another interesting thing I learned there from my boss that was talking, because he was talking about sales and the whole thing when I was learning sales. And I've always wondered if we could look at the statistics for missionaries, but he said that 90% of the money that's made in sales is made by 10% of the salespeople. Because, you know, everybody knows if you've ever bought a car or anything, having a little bit of sociopathy it goes a long, long way in sales. And I mean, I joked for a long time that it took six months after I quit bill collecting before the part of my soul that cared about other people grew back. Because I, I had to turn that off every day for eight hours. And it, That's what you have to do to be successful in sales. Well, know. and so if you're a sociopath, you've already got that. That's it's already out of the way. Step ahead. But I've always wondered with some of the missionaries that were super-duper successful and some of them that weren't, if it's the same kind of thing. Because it's just that to be good at sales, you... you you have to be okay doing psychological oh, clearly. tricks. Clearly, I mean, we could, we could go around the room, and you can think of missionaries who were mis- big mission leaders, assistants to the president, district leader, leaders, who, when they got in the real world, self-destructed because they didn't have any kind of moral compass, right? They, they would go out and do all sorts of crazy things. Um, and I've got to apologize for that statement. If there's any salesmen here, or there's going to be salesmen listening. <laughs> oh, fuck that. I don't mean it's sale, all sales, but high-pressure sales. <laughs> The There's good news is too. they don't have a soul. You don't have to apologize. Uh, we're, I mean, we all, we all do it, um, and, and, and it's an important thing. But one of the questions here is we're kind of driving to the point. What does it mean that the church packs this up and sells it? That, well, you know, I haven't seen the show. There's a new show I see a lot of people posting. The new Cosmos was rebooted, right? And I haven't seen it, but I'm pretty sure I know how it goes down. The first, the host is going to come out, and he's going to tell you that they're going to be talking about something here soon that you really need to listen to. And he's going to get a commitment from you that you're going to watch all six episodes, right? Um, And then he's going to talk about the social pressure of, you know, you really need to listen to these things. and, And he's going to start doing all this stuff. He's really going to sell it up to you because... It's not self-evident, right? Physics isn't self-evident. So all physics departments go out there, and they really sell it to people. Because if, if they didn't, people wouldn't be able to pick up a physics book and look at the equations and do the math. That's not going to happen, right? Truth has to be supported by high-pressure sales techniques. Plus, it's not fun. Physics is not fun. <laughs> so the, the, uh, I mean, my, the, the, the point is, whenever you see something that there's a lot of pressure around selling... 
it's almost always because it's something that's unnecessary or it's something that's not true. Why does Pepsi spend so much money advertising? They spend colossal amounts of money, billions of dollars, because it's sugar water. No one needs it, and it's, it's, a, it's a net detriment on our society. Things that people need and things that people really want. You don't see a lot of advertising for codeine, right? <laughs> um, because, <laughs> because there's things that people actually desire, and you can almost reversely inf- fun- function those things out. MLMs that sell like juice, apple juice, for, for 40 or $50 a bottle will have high-pressure, really strong sales techniques because they have to, because it's not self-evident. And I think the fact that the church does this and, 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 it's, and it's not something that organically grows. If, if the church really is true in everything they say, why do people not recognize it to be so? Even, even if it's, even if you had high pressure sales techniques on the first discussion, you think those would all drop on the second because according to the manual, the high pressure manual that I had, people will start feeling the spirit and then you train them to feel the spirit. Then all the rest of it should go out the door, but it doesn't. It keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So you have this really high-pressure technique around this this thing we're selling, but it's so cynical. So, so backing up a step, when we were talking about uh, door-to-door sales, so this is what I did instead of a mission. Um, I got involved with a company that sells Bibles door-to-door in the south in the middle of the summer, and you go and sell Bibles to Baptists, which is a pretty good business model, actually. And, and uh, I learned a lot of the same techniques that you guys all learned in the MTC. You know, we learned all the door approaches and the assumptive, you know, questions and, and the leading questions and the commitments and all of that stuff. But the, the thing that caught me off guard is um, <laughs> talking to an investigator, if you will, one day, and she's going, why are you here? I know what kind of Bible I want to buy, and I know where to buy it. There's a bookstore that sells Christian books. It's you know it's the Christian bookstore, and they've got 52 different kinds of Bibles. They got study Bibles. They got literal Bibles. They got word for word Bibles. They've got thought for thought Bibles. They've got every kind of Bible you can imagine. They've got illustrated and, and whatnot, and and you know every kind of Bible that I was selling, they had at the Christian bookstore. And she's going, "Why are you here? I know where the Christian bookstore is, and I know which Bible I want to buy." So. Why are you showing up on my doorstep to sell me something that, if I wanted, I could buy for myself? Same thing with fuller brushes and vacuums and whatever else. The The question you have to ask then is, um, why are you selling this crap door-to-door uh, when I know, I know where Walmart is? Right. If if I need a brush, I can go to Walmart and buy a brush. If I need a vacuum cleaner, I can go to Walmart and I can buy a vacuum cleaner. So the the things that you're selling door to door are things that you can't sell at Walmart, like you know thousand dollar vacuums and you know thirty dollar brushes or, or whatever it is. You know those are the things you can't sell at Walmart. 
Well, and I think, I think to that point, it was brought up before that what a salesman is primarily doing is creating a need. Because to your point, if you know you need something, just go down to Walmart and buy it. What, what oftentimes these guys are coming to your, are, are they first of all going to tell you, you really need a Ginsu knife? Like, I don't even know what a Ginsu knife is. Tell me more. It can cut a can. I didn't know I had to cut a can. You know, and, and so, so you start, you start developing this. I got this, a can in the garage I've been trying to cut for weeks. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that the, the truth, the solution to life's problem that the church is trying to sell, people didn't know they had such a problem. They didn't know what they needed to do was go spend three hours every week in, in, in Sunday school. They didn't know they needed to be baptized. They didn't know they needed to get to, to, to get the, these these handshakes in the temple to get the passwords to pass the angels that stand as sentinels. That, and they didn't know that, and 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 so you're creating this 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 fear and this desire for something that they were perfectly fine without. Right, and they use this technique where they they sell you ever last, last excuse me they try to sell you on the notion of everlasting life and eternal families and all of that, and then they give you a religion, right? They're they're selling you this this wonderful idea that I'm going to live in heaven uh, with Jesus and my family forever. But what you get is this funky religion with funny underwear and food rules. Yeah, yeah. Don't drink coffee. Here's the nine-year-olds, and we're going to the onion farm on Saturday. Yeah. Right. I think it's a brilliant example of just what sales is about is that I've always been fascinated by Ron Popeil, who is famous for being an inventor, except he never made a damn cent from inventing anything. You know, it, he sold, I can't remember, I looked it up once. Pocket like Fisherman. The 50, he sold like 50 million or 100 million of those damn food dehydrators. Yeah, and dehydrators, think, the choppers. I think the... I saw one time I saw a Ron Popeil food dehydrator plugged into a wall with some food in it, right? And then I saw one or two like in a closet or under a counter. And I've never, like, I mean, think, how many has anybody seen a Ron Popeil food dehydrator, Right. Right. There's like a hundred million of them in this country. Right. You see you know? them at yard sales. Like uh, how many how many freaking Bette Midler albums do you see everywhere? They sold a hundred million of those. They're everywhere. But these Ron Popeil and the whole point is that the guy Ron Popeil wasn't an inventor. He was a salesman, and that's the difference. Is because he sold this idea like you, why you can save three hundred eighty seven dollars on beef jerky alone with this thing, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to eat that much damn jerky. Fruit dried fruit's not that good. You know, and the whole point is, it's a, it's just like Mormon. It's a pipe dream. Like you get this thing, and you can throw out your fridge. You know, <laughs> but nobody wants to actually live like that. You know, in the interest of um, public service, if we if we legalize pot, um, the world will be overrun with this stuff. Um, that's so <laughs> late at night. I'm just, I'm just. Then you would be spending three hundred eighty-six dollars a year. Alcohol has more to do with that than anything. I know lots of people with the drunk buys. So, so a high pressure, high pressure sells wrapped around a, a message immediately makes the message questionable. Um, the 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 fact that the church itself is willing to sell this for other things, ostensibly anything, um, including messages like the Salvation Army that are not that are in conflicting with the true and everlasting gospel. Um, shows that the church is fully aware that what they're doing is not like an ordinance of the priesthood. They know exactly what they're doing, and they're looking to monetize it elsewhere. They're looking to use it to promote Bonneville International and promote these other organizations. The ones they put in there are things that they think promote their values, the Boy Scouts of America and, and whatnot. That, that if this was really sort of a sacred truth, my point is the church doesn't treat it as if it is. 
ignore the fact that whether you or I believe that this, the church is true. This whole technique and naming it heart cell and trademarking it and laying out the idea that we'll get you to feel, then we'll get you to think, then we'll get you to act. They treat it like a product that they're selling. Right. It doesn't matter if you or I think the church is true. The church doesn't think it's fucking true. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this, right? Is this really what somebody would do with something they think this is the, this is the recognized truth? I mean, the, I, I use the example of the scientists. The scientists come to you and say, isn't this amazing? Isn't this weird? Look at this. Come with us and experience this. Come with us and enjoy it. And oh my God, look what we just found out we were wrong about. Holy shit. We, we're going to change everything now. That's the way science proceeds. And, and they say, come along with this journey. You can find anything wrong. Let us know. We'll give you a Pulitzer Prize. But not religion. Religion treats it differently. Truth sells itself. And untruth, you have to push. You have to, you have to sell. In fact, I find it, I find it ironic that, that Bonneville International has become experts at... Selling bullshit because that's what they've been doing for a they long are time. Experts at it. If if heart cell works, then there's no Holy Ghost, right? How if because if if it's the Holy Ghost converting people and the missionaries are employing these tactics, but if you just go to Bonneville International and they make some freaking radio ads for your line of beef jerky makers, you know. And, but using the exact same technique, what does that mean? The Holy Ghost says I need to buy a freaking food dehydrator? What, how, which way is it going to go? Yeah, it's, it's a bit cynical that uh, when the missionaries are selling you this feeling, they're calling it the Holy Ghost. And when Bonifil is selling you this feeling, they're, they're talking about, what is it, the, the feeling and then thinking and then acting. I you know. find it interesting when I Googled heart cell, the number one thing that comes up is anti-Mormon axe grinders. Yes. <laughs> Going on about how the, the whole idea of the Mormon testimony coming from feelings is you know bogus and all that crap, which cracks me up because if you talk to a Christian long enough, it comes down to feelings for them too. So to wrap it up, let's go back to the last sentence of their sales pitch again. Our people are driven, driven, that by the belief that advertising can and should be a powerful positive influence on the values and lives of people to heart sell and to the church people are chattel and what people believe what people's values are what people's own ethical sense is is something that is bargained for it's something that's controlled that people's values can be by those who are driven and those who are powerful can be shaped and controlled the values are something that are malleable. The church doesn't believe, ultimately, its own scripture that talks about this battle between good and evil. Good is something that can be shaped and can be controlled by powerful, driven people. And you know them by their fruits. So organizations that do and think this way will find ways to systematically control people, to extract their power, to extract their money, to extract their relationships, to keep them in control all the time. And you just have to look and see, is that what the church does? Is the church about empowering people or is the church about taking people's power away? Is the church about, you know, I, I, I say the church will never change its stance on gay marriage and, and ordained women for various reasons. 
But if they ever do, you can sure as hell bet that hard sell has a part of it because values are something that, that, that can, be, can be changed like pants. And um, it's going to be whatever we tell you it's going to be. This is one of the problems I have with these movements. The church is completely dead wrong on not ordaining women. But would you want to be part of a church that will change something like that? Like that. What does that mean about the organization? What does it mean about their values? It means heart sell. That they're going to be able to, they're going to, be able to wrap it up and cram it down your throat. Like the green dragon or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> purple dragon. The purple dragon. Yes, the purple. The purple bishop. <laughs> the one-eyed dragon. <laughs> All right. Um, any other... <laughs> We have a, we have full range here. Thanks, uh, trying to get him to play, play play me off the stage. I'm giving him the wrap it up signal as All fast right. as I can. Any uh, any last thoughts on on this? There is a problem with hard sell, and it's inherent in, in this whole thing. And that's when you're selling bullshit. What happens when people find out it's bullshit? And uh, hard sell doesn't work after that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for for sure. So. It's a flaw. Yeah, I um, my uh, lingering thought is the uh, the notion of bait and switch. I'm going to sell you the thought, the emotion and thought uh, that's tied to living forever in heaven with your family. But what I'm going to sell you is a church. And, you know, that's the cynical nature to me of, of the heart sell approach is I can do this bait and switch shit all day. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you uh, the money savings of, of uh, beef jerky, which, you know, I buy one pack a year. But, hey, I need that, that you know, that endless supply of beef jerky. And then you, you could end be up eating with, 48 pounds of jerky I, a year. I could be, <laughs> and I probably should be. I'd be a better man for it, wouldn't I? But, you know, it, it, just like Ron Popeil um, uh, sells you beef jerky and delivers a dehydrator, the church is selling you eternal life and delivering, you know, uh, obedience cults, you know. Yeah. Uh, it just makes me think just... It's not just the Mormons. Uh, there's this ad that's running like crazy on the Christian radio that sounds a lot like kind of heart celly thing, and it's for MediShare. And they make this big deal about it's not insurance. It's Christian medical sharing where like-minded Christians like you pool their money, and because of the new laws, you don't have to get you know, Obamacare, but it's not insurance. Except it is like it's exactly what it is. It's, it's set up. It's one of the ways around. Registered they make in this all big fifty point states. That, you know, it's like and that uh, you know that you save money because of the Christians who live God honoring lifestyles. And also, you know, he says like my wife and I don't want to spend money on things that break God's heart, like birth control. Right? This ad, it's hilarious. It's a fucking insurance commercial, but. It, it's no, no. This is a church medical sharing thing. Well, Jesus wants me to share medical costs with my fellow Christians. It's hilarious. It's it's the exact same kind of thing. I actually would not be surprised if Bonneville wrote this ad for them. You know, it's it sounds so much like this kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah. So go out there, call up Bonneville, and uh, and you can have them um, send their heart. We just do that. I have a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go and see what they send me. All right, I'll keep you. I'll keep you posted. All right, as as always, you can uh, head over to the website at mormonexpression.com and uh, see what's going on there. And um, thanks again to our wonderful panel. Thanks, guys.
Mormon Expression is a production of the Whitefields Educational Foundation. Visit us online at whitefieldseducational.org 